The next time you're admiring a plant, consider that you and every other animal are meant to admire a flower's color, shape, and smell. Flowering plants may have arrived late in the Earth's history, but they evolved fast, and they displaced many other kinds of plants. We often think of flowers as very delicate plants, and that's not exactly wrong, but they are also world-class competitors who took over the planet. What is the secret of flower power? Charles Darwin was also confounded by this question. In 1879, Darwin read an essay by another scientist, John Ball, and that essay was titled On the Origin of the Flora of the European Alps. The essay was given at a meeting of the Royal Geographical Society in June of 1879. In Ball's essay, he notes that the fossil evidence of flowers appears very rapidly. He then goes on to wonder how the flowers appeared so rapidly and diversely if evolution by natural selection were really responsible for their appearance. In other words, according to Bell and the fossil record, flowers appeared in the late Cretaceous about 145 million years ago, and then there were so many different types seemingly all of a sudden. John Ball questioned how natural selection could account for flowers' sudden appearance. Where did their ancestors come from? And how could natural selection, operating on a long time scale by Darwin's definition, provide so many different kinds of flowers so quickly? So later that same year, 1879, Darwin wrote a letter to his friend and fellow scientist, Joseph Hooker. In it, Darwin writes the following sentence. The rapid development, as far as we can judge, of all the higher plants within recent geological times is an abominable mystery. The phrase abominable mystery becomes one of the most oft-quoted Darwin phrases of all time and probably one of the most popular quotes about flower evolution in general. What Darwin meant was that Ball really had him on this one. He didn't know how natural selection could explain the rapid evolution of flowering plants. It went against one of Darwin's central posits about evolution via selection. He said, Natura non facet saltum, or nature never makes leaps. Consider this. The first flower from the fossil record appeared 125 million years ago. This was Archifructus, which means old flower. This plant is extinct now, but there it appeared in the fossil record. The flower may be indiscernible because it's small and inconspicuous, but it is present, and that's what makes this plant unique. It's a short, shrubby plant with small flowers, but the flowers are there. Then, a mere 40 million years later, there's flowers everywhere. This is a relatively short evolutionary time. Consider that the first land plants arose about 420 million years ago in the Silurian, and it took another 293 million years to get to the first flower. And then, 40 million years later, there are flowers everywhere. Even more puzzling, flowering plants are the dominant form of planet of plants on the planet. Depending how you count, there are anywhere from 330,000 to 400,000 species of flowering plants. You can see why this would be a dilemma. Also, at the time, there was nothing that looked even remotely like an intermediate. There were cones from the conifers, and there were flowers. Cones don't look too much like flowers. So how did flowers 
arise. In 1879, though, the fossil record wasn't nearly as clear as it is now. We have a much better understanding where flowers came from and how that evolution could have happened much quicker than Darwin suspected. We now know about more mechanisms for the creation of new species than were known during Darwin's time. For example, we now understand polyploidy, which is where the chromosomes can double or triple during reproduction, and we also have a much better picture of the fossil record. In fact, in a paper from 2013, Peter A. Hochuli and Suzanne Feist Burkhart found pollen from an extinct flowering plant called Afropolis in northern Switzerland that they estimate to be between 252 and 247 million years ago, or even earlier. That would be 100 million years earlier than the date Darwin found so abominable. They also suggest that the pollen is of a type that is usually insect-pollinated, most likely from beetles, given that beetles were also present during this time. Such a plant could have been like present-day gymnosperms. That extra 100 million years certainly helps Darwin out a bit. Still, pollen isn't a flower. It could be that flowers just don't fossilize very well, which they don't. Some botanists have suggested we're just not looking in the right place. It may also be that early flowers were just small. The conifers and cycads of the Jurassic were so dominant that flowers were just waiting in the understory, so to speak. This scenario was true of early mammals, which were also small but got bigger after the demise of the dinosaurs. Additionally, the flowers may not have been woody, and again, this would have limited their ability to form fossils. Interestingly, molecular evidence puts the advent of the flowering plants back to about 290 million years ago, way before the Cretaceous. How would molecular evidence even work in trying to determine the age when something from that long ago evolved? The main molecular technique used is that of the molecular clock. This basically looks at DNA within an organism that would change on a regular basis. That is, an organism that has a background rate of mutation that wouldn't be associated with reproduction or natural selection. Generally with plants, botanists are looking at similarities or differences within a particular piece of chloroplast DNA. This technique assumes that the DNA within the chloroplast changes at a regular rate and that the more different it is from current DNA, the longer ago it must have come on the scene. Why the fossil record and the molecular evidence don't match up probably has to do with those ideas we mentioned about early flowering plants not being the best at forming fossils. Whatever the exact origin of the flowers, we do have some good evidence of what very early flowers may have looked like and how they might have evolved from conifers. Botanists also tend to agree that the flowers form a good group, also called a monophyletic group. That is a group with one descendant and all of the offspring. Yet other botanists suggest that the flower may have evolved more than once. Still, conifers and ferns and mosses have been around much longer than flowering plants. So how were there so many different species of flowering plants in such a short time? The answer may lie in the fact that many flowering plants are both pollinated and dispersed by animals. 
An animal moving pollen between plants could become more specialized and get pollen from only one type of plant. Now the plants pollinated by that animal are reproductively isolated from other plants. This is the key to speciation or the formation of new species. The other way animals can be key in speciation is through dispersal. If an animal disperses a seed to a new environment, it can be in a new island, figuratively speaking. That is, the animal has dispersed the seed to a new location where it can no longer breed with its old population, so it becomes reproductively isolated, and speciation occurs. Now would be a good time to remind ourselves about the taxonomy that botanists use to describe groupings of plants. Do you remember our mnemonic device? King Philip came over from Good Spain. King stands for kingdom. The easiest. We're only doing one kingdom in the whole course, and that's plants. Philip stands for phyla. We've discussed a few phyla. We started with mosses, the bryophyta. We talked about ferns, teridophyta, and then we learned all about pinophyta, the largest phylum of the conifers. Class is the next grouping of different orders. There are essentially two classes of flowering plants. The next level down, the order is helpful in thinking about evolutionary relations of plants. Like class, it's named for the type family that best represents the order. There are dozens of orders, and so one example is the Lamiales. All orders end in the suffix "ales," so there's a sort of rule for you in botany. It's named after the family Lamiaceae, which is the mint family. But it also includes about 20 other families, like the Verbenaceae, which include the Verbena herbs, and the Oleaceae, or the olive family. The family level in botany, such as the Lamiaceae that we just met, always ends in the suffix "aceae." The largest plant families, in terms of numbers of species, are the Orchidaceae, the orchids, the asters, which are the sunflowers, and the Fabaceae, or the peas. And then the last two groupings are genus and species. A genus is a particular grouping within the plant family, and the species name is actually comprised of both the genus and the specific epithet. In a sense, this is like having a last name and a first name. Only what we think of as a last name comes first, and this is akin to the Chinese way of naming. So, for example, when we discussed Pinus ponderosa, the Pinus part is the pine genus. And the specific epithet ponderosa describes which pine we're talking about—the ponderous or heavy one. Together, the genus and the specific epithet make up the scientific name, and we call this a Latin binomial because it's Latin and a scientific name. It should always be written in a certain way, with the genus capitalized and the specific epithet lowercase, and the whole thing should be italicized or underlined. In fact, this is the way we would write our own scientific name, Homo sapiens. The binomial system of biological nomenclature was developed by Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus, but it's also used for animals, protists, and fungus too. Bacteria and viruses are harder to classify to the species level because it's difficult to know where one species stops and another species begins. But generally, field botanists, those interested in identifying plants in the field, focus on the family level, and families are named after the type genus within that family, which is the genus that typifies the traits 
of the family. For example, the genus Pinus is the type genus for which the family is named. Another example would be the sunflower family. The type genus of sunflowers is Aster, so the family name is Asteraceae. There are about 600 families of plants, and some of that number depends on the different ways molecular evidence might be used to define some of the families. Some botanists might lump two families together, where another will split them. The grouping of living things like this is called taxonomy. Carl Linnaeus lived in the 1700s, so he predated Darwin. Now, Linnaeus was a Swedish doctor, and at this time, in the mid-1700s, all doctors were gardeners and botanists, since most medicines were derived from plants or fungus. Linnaeus organized living things into a system that is still the basis of the system we use today. All of his arrangements of plants were based on reproductive structures. Using evolutionary relations within such groupings is called systematics. So there's a slight difference between these two. Taxonomy simply says knife, fork, spoon, spork, chopsticks. Systematics says which came first, knife as the simplest and as a necessity to hunt, then fork? Chopsticks clearly didn't evolve from fork, so that must be a separate group. I hope you can appreciate the difference. Botanists don't really do simple taxonomy without evolutionary relations, but knowing a few families, even if you can't remember the evolutionary difference between them, helps a lot when trying to identify plants in the field. As each new scientific advance came along, the sequence of these groupings were changed a bit, but none changed the thinking nearly as much as molecular evidence. As with many things in botany, molecular evidence has changed the way we once thought about the evolutionary progression of flowering plants. Now, as I mentioned, botanists focus on the family. It used to be thought that the earliest flowering plants were those like in the magnolia family, big showy flowers, and you can almost imagine the center part of the flower looking a bit like a cone. And, but the next came a hypothesis that the earliest fossil flowers were quite small and looked more like those in the Piper family or the Piper ACE. Once again, molecular evidence provides a bit of an alternative. In 2013, the entire genome of a small weedy shrub native to New Caledonia had been sequenced. Interestingly, Darwin actually suspected that the center of flowering plant evolution had been a distant place that science had not yet discovered, and New Caledonia is an island in the South Pacific. For the decade before this full genome sequence was completed, botanists had used a variety of molecular techniques to determine that this shrub, Amborella trichopoda, was the oldest extant flowering plant. This shrub is the only member of the Amborella ACE and probably had other relatives that were alive sometime in the past. It turns out that this shrub is the sister group to all of the flowering plants, indicating that indeed it is a common ancestor to all flowering plants. This shrub gives us some clues about what the earliest flowering plants might have looked like. Because it's a shrub, botanists can confirm the hypothesis that the earliest flowering plants were woody. However, due to its weedy growth in the understory, likely the first flowering plants were not towering trees, like many of the gymnosperms. 
This plant is dioecious, which is another clue about the early flowering plants. How might a flower, even a rudimentary flower, have developed? There are several models for how this might have occurred. The best genetic techniques indicate that the same genes that are responsible for flower development in Amborella are the same genes that are responsible for the formation of the male cones of the gymnosperms. So it seems the flower developed from the male cone. Before we talk about the diversity of flowering plants, and there are anywhere between 300,000 and 400,000 of them, depending on how you count, we should assure ourselves that we understand all the different parts of a flower. There are very few rules in botany, but here's one I challenge you to check for yourself. All the flowering plants have an outer ring of male parts with an inner ring of female parts. In botany, when something forms a ring, we call it a whorl. So the male parts of the flower whorl around the female parts in all flowers. That is the case for all flowers supports the idea that the flower only arose once in evolutionary history. Okay, so what are those male and female parts of the flower? Male parts are called stamens, and that's pretty easy to remember because they are men. Stamen have an anther with a pollen and a stalk called the filament. The female part are parts are a bit more complicated. There is a top part called the stigma. I like to say the sticky stigma because this is where the pollen will land. The stigma then becomes the style. I like to say the stylin style because it's usually long and thin and connects to the ovary at the base. The ovary is where the ovule is housed. And collectively, the female part is called the carpal or the pistil. At a minimum, flowers have either male or female parts. The typical flower has both male and female parts, and they're called perfect flowers. But some flowers can be all male, called staminate flowers, and others can be all female, called pistillate or carpalate flowers. The petals and sepals are the perianth, and this part is optional. Some flowers have them, and other flowers don't. But flowers such as black pepper, piper nigrum, do not have the perianth. And flowers don't have to have sepals, which are the typically green leaves under the petals. Sometimes the petals and sepals can't be distinguished, so they're called tepals. The flowers of magnolia trees have tepals, for example. The arrangement and the number of stamens and carpels, petals and sepals, varies with various families. And this was the distinguishing factor that Linnaeus used to categorize his families of plants. Linnaeus famously described stamens and carpels in terms of brides and grooms. So in describing a flower that had five stamens and one carpel, he would describe it as one bride in a bedchamber with five groomsmen. <laughs> He did so to appear modest, but there was quite a bit of outrage about this seemingly perverse nature. Flowering plants are called the anthophyta, or the angiosperms, which means closed vessel. Recall that gymnosperm meant naked seed, and so angiosperm comes from the Greek angion, vessel, and refers to the seed. So instead of the cones, which have open seeds, these plants will enclose the seed in an ovary that then swells to become the fruits. 
The phylum of flowering plants, the Anthophyta, is traditionally divided into two classes, going back to a taxonomy published in the 17th century by botanist John Ray, which he called dicots and monocots. However, the term dicot isn't used anymore because it doesn't represent a true evolutionary group. Instead of dicots, botanists use the term eudicots. So why weren't these good groups? But first, let's look at the difference between these two classes, which are still used, just with eudicot instead of dicot. And then look at why the name dicot had to be changed a bit. As you were probably taught at some point, the term dicot refers to dicotyledon. The cotyledon is the seed leaf or the first leaf that emerges in the developing plant. In dicots, there are two cotyledons that emerge at the same time. In monocots, there's only one seed leaf. The difference between these two groups of plants can also be seen in several different physical aspects of the flowers, the veins in the leaf, and the arrangement of the vascular tissue in cross-section. So let's begin with the flowers. Monocots have flower parts in groups of threes. That means monocots can have three, six, or even nine stamens and three or six carpels. Monocots will also have three petals and three sepals, like trillium, or six petals and six sepals, like most lilies. Dicots have flower parts in fours or fives. Notice how the sepals, petals, stamens, and carpels are all in multiples of fours or five. What's funny about using botanical keys is that usually after eight or ten, the number just becomes many or even infinity. And I like to joke that botanists don't really like to count past 10. <laughs> Let's look at leaf venation. And this is just what it sounds like, the veins running through the leaf of xylem and phloem. In monocots, the leaf veins are parallel, like the veins in a grass blade, because a grass is a monocot. In dicots, the leaf veins are netted, like a feather or like a palm, pretty much anything but parallel. The dicots have a tissue arrangement that is reminiscent of that which we saw in woody plants. In fact, most trees are eudicots or belong to one of the groups that was removed from the dicots. Altogether, these removed groups are called the basal angiosperms. The eudicot vascular tissue arrangement has rings around the outside of the stem with phloem on the outside and xylem on the inside, just like the woody stem. Only now there is no cork cambium and no bark. So the dicots can have secondary growth, which is outward growth and wood development, but they don't have to do this. The monocots don't have secondary growth at all, so the monocots don't have true wood. The monocots have vascular tissue arranged in what I fondly learned as monkey faces. Essentially, these bundles are arranged throughout the plant, and they consist of two large columns of xylem, which look like eyes, and phloem cells, which look like a forehead. This vascular bundle also has a small space called the lacunae, which looks a little like a mouth. I don't know. Maybe it's not a great analogy, but if you squint, you can just make it out. So why the new word eudicots? These seem like nice divisions, but there are a number of flowering plant families that don't fit very nicely in either of these two categories. For example, the water lily family, Nymphaceae, have a stem arrangement that looks like a monocot. They have six sepals, and they have what looks to be one cotyledon, but they have netted leaf venation. The question then becomes where to put this family. 
As it turns out, there are a few, maybe a dozen or so families in this predicament. And so many botanists lumped them together in a group called the basal angiosperms. The term basal implies that they're at the base of the phylogenetic tree of the flowering plants. This is not a very large group as they make up less than 5% of all of the flowering plants. Basal angiosperms often show combinations of the following traits. Numerous flattened or laminar stamens with wide filaments, numerous tepals, which are indistinguishable, petals and sepals, many separate carpels, and alternate spirally arranged leaves. Thus, the old dicot name used to include many of the basal angiosperms. Once these plants were taken out of the dicots, the new name, the new name became eudicots or true dicots. I mean, who knows what those basal angiosperms are? Indeed, they're not a cohesive group, but they fit better on their own than they do in the monocots or the old dicots. One plant family in this group that students usually remember as a basal angiosperms is the magnolia family, the magnoliaceae. The ending ace implies a family. The magnolias have always been placed at the bottom of the flowering plants, probably because the carpels in this group superficially resemble cones. While they're not cones, this group is still in the basal angiosperms, mainly due to the numerous tepals and many separate carpels, which can be seen in the cone-like structure of the carpels. Each one of those divisions is a carpel that houses an ovule, and that is where the bright red seeds of the magnolia are born. So thinking about the evolutionary tree of the flowering plants, it might go something like this. Our oldest fossil flower is Archifructus. It was a simple shrubby plant, but clearly a flower. Fast forward about 127 million years, and we have the species Amborella trichopoda. This is the living sister group to all the remaining flowering plants. From here, the basal angiosperms were likely next on the scene, and from a common ancestor to the basal angiosperms, the monocots and eudicots appeared. In terms of diversity, as we mentioned, only about 5% of flowering plants are basal angiosperms. The monocots comprise about 25%, and all the rest are eudicots. As I mentioned, there are probably between 300,000 and 400,000 species of flowering plants, but botanists don't seem to have as many words to describe the shapes of flowers as the shapes of leaves. When I think of flower shapes, I generally think of symmetry. Flowers can be radially symmetrical or bilaterally symmetrical. There are a few descriptors like tube-shaped and bell-shaped flowers, but other terms would be reserved for specific flowers, and botanists don't use them broadly. I think this is because there are so many other ways to determine the family to which a plant belongs by looking at the flower. Most wildflower ID books will use color. Others will use inflorescence types. An inflorescence describes how the flowers are arranged on the stem. There are quite a few descriptors of inflorescences. A single flower on a stem is called a solitary inflorescence, and flowers that alternate up the stem is called an inflorescence that's called a raceme. If those flowers are tightly compressed on the tip of the stem, it's called a spike. 
An inflorescence that has numerous flowers forming a sort of umbrella shape is called an umbel, from the Latin umbella, meaning sunshade, which also gives us the word umbrella. But the most deciding factor in the determination of the species is the number and arrangement of the male and female parts. For example, members of the hibiscus family, the Malvaceae, have the stamen forming a tube around the pistil or coming off directly from the pistil. This is called a monodelphous stamen, and it's a key giveaway for this family. Of course, most children are taught that flowers are showy and smell nice to attract pollinator animals that will enable the plant to exchange pollen. However, there are other adaptations of flowers that are not reproductive. A 2006 review chapter in the book Ecology and Evolution of Flowers, Sharon Strauss and Justin Whittall review a number of published studies that show a correlation between pink and purple flowers and drought or heat stress. Remember that flowers of the same species can have different colored flowers, the same as humans can have different hair colors. Anthocyanins are pigments not only in the leaves but also in the flowers, where they cause flowers to be any hue of red or pink. Anthocyanins are also the most common pigments in flowering plants, perhaps because red and pink are also associated with stress. So, in the Strauss and Whittle review, the plant that had pink or purple flowers had greater levels of anthocyanins. These anthocyanins were also in the leaf, where they help the plant cope with higher levels of heat or drought. So here is an example where flower color isn't related necessarily to a pollinator preference, but to a physiologic response. Additionally, pollinators may prefer large flowers, but large flowers are energetically and hydrologically expensive from the point of view of the plant. There's a trade-off between attracting pollinators and making flowers small enough that there's enough energy to make a fruit for later dispersal of the seed, and that keeps the flower size modest in most plants. The world's largest single flower is the Verflesia arnoldi from the rainforest of Indonesia. What do you think, unicot or monocot? It has five perigone lobes, which are essentially giant hardened petals. It's a unicot. The largest record of the individual flower was measured at over one meter across. That's about three feet four inches. This single flower weighed 24 pounds. How about that for a corsage? <laughs> It's actually a parasitic plant with no visible leaves, roots, or stem, which may be why it's able to shunt all of its energy into its massive flower size. Interesting. The common name is corpse flower because it smells like rotting flesh, and this is also the common name of the plant with the largest inflorescence. Remember that the inflorescence is a collection of individual flowers on the stem. Now, the largest inflorescence goes to another corpse flower, but this one is called Amorphothallus titanum or the Titan arum. This is the corpse flower that botanic gardens will often put on special display when it flowers because it doesn't flower very often. This inflorescence can grow to a height of three meters or ten feet. The leaf of this plant can grow six meters or twenty feet tall. It generally takes about seven to ten years for the first flower to bloom, and then it may bloom more frequently, like every two or three years, or it might not. No rules in botany.
But there are patterns. Why might both of these supersized flowers smell like carrion? The answer is to attract flies. The Titan Arum is a monocot and the Rafflesia is a eudicot, but they both live in Sumatra. So something about Sumatran rainforests has pollinators that are attracted to the smell of rotting flesh. These pollinators turn out to be carrion-eating beetles and flesh flies. Both of these animals seek out rotting meat, and these corpse flowers trick them into thinking they found it, but not before the animals have done the plant's bidding and moved pollen from one plant to another. Certainly these beetles and flies must think corpse flowers an abominable mystery. So the next time you are admiring a flower, its color, its smell, or its shape, remember that you and every other animal are meant to admire it. You're doing exactly what the plant wants.